Hi and welcome to the All Plane Podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other interesting aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. Today we revisit one of our favorite topics, that's electric aviation. And to do so, we've got Tom Vrooman in the podcast. Tom is the founder of Electric Leap. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's already sold two technology companies. And he now advises companies in the electric aviation space and helps them get funded. Tom's interest in electric transportation actually started with boats, although it would soon switch to planes. Having a pilot license, Tom soon found himself exploring and experimenting with the different possibilities that light aircraft offer for electrification. His initial idea was to launch a business that would provide electrically powered air transportation services. But upon researching this idea thoroughly, he realized that there were still many obstacles along the way. And this taught him a valuable lesson, that is to separate the hype from the facts in this very headline-prone wall of electrical aviation. So today's episode is what I would call an exercise of realism about where electric aviation is at the moment, what are its most immediate prospects, and which are, in Tom's opinion, the most solid approaches to secure funding and to make steady but sure progress in this field. So, without further ado, join us for a wide-ranging and insightful conversation with Tom about the electric flight landscape. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, Mikael. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I'm, uh, I'm good. It's the first thing we're doing this week, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's always good to start the week very active with something that, you know, um, yes, it's true. Why not uh, record a port podcast at uh, at 9 a.m. first thing in the month? Yeah. Yes, and I hope that it, it will give us all like lots of energy to to carry on with with the week. Um, Absolutely, the rest of the week. So yeah, uh, thank you very much for for being here on the podcast. I think your insights are going to be very very interesting because you've been pretty much on top of the uh, let's say the electric aviation space i will ask you now to introduce yourself but basically you've been uh, following this industry as a, as an expert as a as an investor i think and as an advisor to a number of ventures in the, the electric flight startup space let's say this way so yeah I, i'm i've got plenty of questions but first of all tell us a few words about yourself and your entre- entrepreneurial career i think we can call you a, a serial entrepreneur yeah thank you yes yeah you know i always you know, in the early days of uh, of startups in Europe, it was a bit frowned upon to call yourself serial entrepreneur. But yes, if you sold a couple of companies, I can, I guess, uh, you can call it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not uh, well. I must say, two companies. I think they were not aviation related. They were technology companies. Strictly speaking, were not connected to the field we're going to talk about now. But I guess you've got a passion for obviously for sustainability and and also for for aviation. Yes, yes, it's true. I, uh, you know, I accidentally got into entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. I actually had a corporate career after my uh, after my studies. I have a degree in mechanical engineering and in economics. Later, I got an MBA. But I, I started my career in a corporate. You know, thinking I would have a nice corporate career. But um, around two thousand and eight, 
I accidentally, with a group of friends, got involved uh, after, you know, with the credit crunch uh, that was going on at that time. We founded yeah. uh, one of the first crowd finance companies. And uh, I, I, I've been a founder and CEO there until uh, 2015 when I sold it. This was very interesting because uh, it, it, it was an industry. This was a fintech before it was even called fintech. You know, we had to fight the banks and the authorities to actually be able to make people invest very small amounts into um, in, into uh, SMEs. It's very similar to what uh, like a lot of aviation OEMs are trying to do now with the regulatory, regulatory framework at, at EASA and FAA. Uh, trying to make a big change, like a step change in a sector. And in the beginning, this is seen as a huge challenge. And in the end, you will see that it becomes mainstream. Yeah, I was um, thinking that. It, it, it's, a, it's a field where you, you need some, some trailblazers going ahead. Yeah, it was tough also because back in 2008, the, the, the investments were not as... And, and, and entrepreneurship and startups in itself that were not as, as big as they are right now. You know, in, back in, in 2008, 2009, if I would say I would start a startup, everybody would say, what, what are you doing? You know, you could have a nice corporate career. Why would you go do like a, a startup? What is that a hobby project? It's, it's a completely different time than it is right now where everyone says, oh, you're doing a startup here. Give me a job. Take my money. But uh, no, these were very interesting times. And I learned in that because we, we, we really had to get laws changed to, uh, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the, the, the National Bank required any investment company to pay them about 20 euros per year uh, if the, uh, per customer that would have an investment portfolio. But we were a crowd investment company, so we would have customers that would hold an investment portfolio of five euros mm -hmm. for five years. Yeah. So we had to completely change the paradigm, and mm -hmm. this is also something that that is uh, has a lot of parallels with 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 aviation right now. Is uh, especially when you look at scale, when you look at uh, airports, when you look at operators, when you look at OEMs. If we want to fly electric, if we want to fly 100% sustainable, um, really some paradigms are going to have to be changed. And this requires time, money, and teams with extraordinary capabilities. And that makes it a very interesting sector. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, after... I'm yes. Sorry. No. No. Go ahead. I, I actually I think you were going to to say what I was uh, answering my <laughs> my next question, which was well, you you sold these companies and then you moved on to the electric aviation space. No. So so I, uh, after Crowdabout now I I, uh, I I I set up Buzzmaster. It was a, a event tech company um, uh, which I sold in in, in twenty twenty, and parallel to that. I uh, ran an electric speedboat company, which also uh, happened out of accident. I wanted to have an electric speedboat. And uh, we started developing that in 2015. In 2016, we turned it into a company. And uh, in, the, in the end, uh, Ripple Yachts was licensed out in, in, in 2020. <clears throat> it was extremely pioneering because batteries are very expensive. And, um, and in these electric speedboats, we ran similar engines that are used in uh, electric aviation today. For instance, the the the, the engine in the in the Pipistrelle uh, mm -hmm. that is the first certified uh, electric airplane. Yes. Uh, we used it in 2015, 2016 in the electric speedboats, 
And, you know, boats have a similar issue as planes, you know, they are very, very energy intensive. And the mass of the batteries basically uh, goes against their efficiency. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether you're going through air or through water, uh, you have huge challenges. We, we had to use hydrofoils, we had to use special air. So you had, we had to take everything out of a toolbox to make a craft more efficient. Interesting. And the advantage of boats is that they are not in such a tight certification scheme as, as airplanes. Plus, if your battery goes dead, you don't crash, you just float around. So it, yeah. was, a, it was a very interesting playground. And I, I actually have a pilot license and one of my partners in this company also had a pilot license. And for fun, we were always like taking our drivetrains and our batteries and we would extrapolate them into uh, the planes we would be flying, which would mm. be like single engine pistons or twin engine pistons. And uh, so I kept since 2016 an Excel file where I put the state of technology of my batteries uh, and my engines, which were off the shelf, which I had touched personally, which we had seen in our workshop, and we had been able to measure their real performance. And I put that in an Excel sheet, and I I had uh, some sort of a framework to compare that with uh, the mass of the engine and the, the fuel mass and actually make an extrapolation using the uh, the energies we could derive from the pilot's operating manual and somewhere around 2019 i could see in these excels that uh, obviously it was always possible to make an electric plane but in order to reach a capacity like a payload to take a sufficient number of passengers and to make a sufficient speed and a sufficient range to have a utility value to travelers I was thinking, okay, I think this is going to be, if we extrapolate a little bit, it's going to happen in around 2025. Mm-hmm. So around that time, we created Electric Leap Europe, which uh, had the ultimate vision to, uh, in, in, uh, to, to create the first electric plane operator. Back then, I believed that this would be easiest done by converting an existing plane and that we'll probably get back to this conversion theory later and we started you know at a team of four and we started experimenting with business models and, uh, and 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 trying to touch all the proof points that were needed to be touched as soon as there would be a viable electric plane but so, are you were you directly um let's say intending to build directly the aircraft or to actually, let's say, get involved in more as a sort of investors or advisors, get involved in other projects that might be taking shape at the time when you launch this? No, actually, we were not. My intention was to be the first customer of the first commercially viable electric planes Mm -hmm. by having a viable business model. You know, it's the electric planes, they're going to come. Only they're going to have uh, compromises on size, speed, and range, which hurt the customer perceived utility value. So in order to be able to operate them successfully in a commercial way, you need to create a business model that has a cost that is in balance with their capacity, with their speed, and with their range. 
And so this was the goal of our company. And we researched a lot. We did a lot of market research. You know, we spoke to airports. We even launched a, a, an app where you could book an electric flight in the app store. And we let people book it to see if they had the willingness to pay of what we were thinking um, it would cost. And now after doing that for, for a year, a year and a half, we actually had to conclude that um, it was going to be very disappointing for uh, quite a long time, eh? for uh, probably up to a decade. Uh, so, so I put the operator idea into the fridge uh, to maybe see, okay, we learned a lot, you know, okay, it's, that cost me a lot of money and time, but we learned a lot. And, you know, in the future, we're going to, to use this knowledge. But in the process, I had spoken to a lot of uh, startups who are, were electric uh, plane OEMs, and, or, or trying to become electric plane OEMs. And, uh, you know, they wanted to sign letter, letters of intent and uh, wanted to exchange and uh, to, to, to talk about specifications. So I kind of pivoted Electric Leap into advising these companies yeah, because uh, lots of electric aviation companies are based on a plane vision and are based on creating something that's possible. Uh, but if you do not adjust that perfectly to something that is useful uh, to the end customer and uh, the paying traveler, you know, it's, it's probably going to be a product that fails. And the paradigms that were used to determine if a plane is viable in the past are not applicable right now. So I, I, I spent my time advising OEMs by letting come together the technology side, the market side and the financial markets uh, side. And this became an extremely interesting subject because mm -hmm. if you make a thorough analysis of what is technically feasible, of what is actually demanded in the market in a realistically predictable future market, what is realistic in a financial way and what also test, uh, passes some reality checks in the sense of scale and capabilities of what a deep tech startup would be able to do. It is one of the biggest challenges ever seen to actually create a electric plane. And so I guided uh, some of these OEMs in getting their funding. I was involved with some big funding rounds, uh, up to 10 million of OEMs in Germany and France. And I, I combined this experience in, in trying to make a vision. Mm -hmm. And... Just yeah. to clarify one thing, when you mention electric, are we talking about conventional takeoff or you are also active in, in the eVTOL space? Um, <clears throat> I, I have followed eVTOL uh, very closely, but I'm not a believer for, for a very simple reason. You know, you have to do some reality checks when you operate a startup. For instance, let me let me take an example. We take an eVTOL uh, a company and uh, we try to predict what it should look like in the future. And then you've already invested about 500 million to get it certified. By that time, in order to operate at a price that matches the, 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 the utility value of an eVTOL, you will need to operate in a dense city where there's a lot of traffic problems. It takes cities like Paris, London, uh, you know, in, in, in Brazil, there are quite some uh, cities. You'd need to operate at any moment a significant number of these crafts uh, over the city. And so this poses a number of challenges to, to these companies. One is you need to, uh, to be able to create hundreds and hundreds of these crafts in a couple of years. A feat that is at this moment not even done by incumbent helicopter or airplane builders. 
Secondly, you will need to convince air traffic regulators, uh, air traffic control, to allow uh, the skies of any city to be completely filled up with EV tolls. And there may be electric, but they're, they're not devoid of noise, and they're especially not devoid of accidents. And if, if you know, I live in Paris, it's not even allowed to operate helicopters over Paris at scale at this point. Yeah, no, I used and in Amsterdam sometimes I I took my, my my plane and I would fly it over the city and basically air traffic control is completely overloaded when you have a big air uh, air hub in the neighborhood and you have only already two or three pieces of small air traffic in the sky. And, you know, people will say, oh, we will go automated, uh, we will go automated and uh, EASA will become more flexible and air traffic control will become more flexible. But these are black box assumptions. Uh, also, they'll say, OK, we'll be like Tesla. Tesla can produce millions of cars, so we can do that, too. But there's a lot of black box assumptions to make that possible. Yeah. Secondly, the law of being able to create a craft that flies for a substantial time at substantial speed in order to create utility value is still also, is even harder for EV tolls than it is for conventional takeoff. And if it's already extremely tough to create a conventional takeoff electric plane with sufficient speed and range, yeah, look at look at the enormous challenges that are faced by heart. Right? Um, uh, How are which, you going uh, to be able to keep that up in in eVTOL? And eVTOL basically at this moment thrives on hype, marketing, mm -hmm. uh, a, a dream uh, of making things possible. And, you know, it's going to be very challenging. It, the, uh, the second point is, if you're going to operate air taxis in vertical takeoff configuration, and you're claiming that it is sustainable... You're basically um, missing a number of points eh? because if you can operate an, air, an electric air taxi, you can also take an electric ground-based taxi, which is uh, orders of magnitude more efficient and in the usage of space and energy. So yeah, in the end, there's a couple of proof points that 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 are almost impossible to meet. In some use cases, you would be competing with uh, public transportation as well, which. Yeah. I guess from an environmental point of view, in in many cases, in a urban environment at least, in many cases, it's um, yeah, it's it's difficult to yeah to argue yeah, the, the, against, the, right? <laughs> don't get me wrong, EV tolls will happen, mm -hmm. yeah. and they will have uh, some suitable range to mm -hmm. transport you from one yes. side to the other side of the city. But it will be an extremely luxury product, which will be operated at very small scale. And it will be very, very hard to earn back the investment money, which actually makes it a an extremely uh, low feasibility niche. But for sure, it will happen. This law of scales and this law of reality checks also applies to conventional takeoff electric planes. For instance, there's a lot of initiatives with small conventional takeoff electric planes. And this is what we wanted to do initially also with, with Electric Leap to operate four passenger or four person planes with like two passengers in some sort of air taxi configuration. Now, it is almost impossible if you look at the, at the cost to operate a single unit with a low number of passengers, you will need to really hit a stack 
of black box assumptions or proof points in order to get this cost down so much that the chance that you're going to succeed in getting this cost down uh, enough to actually be profitable is very, very small. Uh, Of course, big airlines will say we are only interested in planes that carry a minimum of 50 passengers. Mm-hmm. I believe, and I'm, we made simulators and models uh, for that, that the the ideal breaking point is somewhere between 16 and 19 passengers, where below that, you need uh, the, the sheer amount of planes and pilots you need to operate at sufficient scale and profitability to earn back an investment in this type of, of, of the development of this type of planes, it's it's nearly impossible or it requires lots of luck and chance in some accidental changes uh, in the market. And uh, above that, it starts becoming profitable. But as you can see with initiatives like hard aviation, it's also yeah. a much harder problem to solve. Yeah, actually, we have seen just a few days ago how uh, hard aerospace has uh, pivoted from from the 19 seat all electric to the 30 seater mm-hmm. uh, hybrid type, which mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was quite quite interesting thing to see. Yeah. and and I guess well, on the other side of the spectrum, you would have things like Whisk trying to do the automated to get the the pilot. The, the staff cost out of the equation, but of course that comes with its own set of challenges, yeah. technical and, and and regulatory as well. Because of of course yeah. you're gonna have uh, you're gonna need a framework for for these yes, unmanned yes. things to to operate. No, but the, yeah. you know maybe the point is not that mm-hmm. just there is one breaking point. Mm-hmm. Like maybe we're going to have automated eVTOLs. Who knows? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But the chance that we get it and on time is very small. Mm-hmm. On top of that, the chance that an eVTOL will be able to get uh, the one in a billion type of failure rate that's required to fly over populated areas is also very small. Then on top of that, the chance that the cost of the whole thing is going to be so low that it's going to be accessible to so many people that it will earn you back the huge investment mm-hmm. is also very low. So it's a stack yeah. of chances that are in the end extremely unlikely to come true. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is how, uh, you know, the, the, the point is, this is how from an investor point of view, a project is approached. But from the OEM, from the entrepreneur point of view, it's basically like, okay, I look at technologies and I think if I combine these together, it's going to work. But then there is going to be like a 10-year, 500 million uh, a total process and mm-hmm. we are only seeing the very very beginning of this most OEMs have raised something in the order of magnitude of 5 million and the first 5 million in my experience is extremely easy but the problem with lots of these initiatives is, is that they are using this 5 million to design a complete plane whereas the big problems that are going to determine their future still have to be solved Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a successful OEM at this point, is spending 95% of its time on getting these high-risk proof points fixed mm-hmm. and not on designing a complete airplane mm-hmm. uh, because 99% of designing a complete airplane is simply a trick that has been done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that reminds me of uh, a very interesting article. Actually, it was a series of articles that, there is this expert called Michael Barnard. He he wrote a sort of uh, a critical assessment of the 
potential of EV tolls. And well, he went on saying that, that it was a niche, a niche capability, but he didn't see it happening at, at, at the scale, mm. more, more like helicopters are today, like something that is useful for specific use cases, but yeah. it's not nearly as universal or as widespread. So you're focusing on, on the electric conventional takeoff and landing then, and you've been advising companies, I guess most of them startups that are trying to basically put this concept into practice. We, we've got a couple of those entrepreneurs here in the podcast uh, had uh, Joseph Morris from Electron a few days ago. We had uh, also Airflow a few months back. So yeah, I, I guess like in these cases, it's usually about creating a new creating a new market, isn't it? All these connections between secondary airports, bypassing the, the main hubs. I don't know if that's, that's a, a shared vision uh, here. Hmm. Yeah, um, you know, from experience, and then from the the deep techs I uh, I advise, but also from experience from my own companies, is that the most successful startups, um, the most successful scale ups, they focus on a very focused on solving a very focused problem. Huh? So the problem with electric aviation OEMs is that they have a small plane. It's the plane is small. It can carry few passengers. It is slow because some of the electric uh, initiatives that are on the market are not much faster than a car and might therefore lack uh, uh, utility value and they do not go very far. So what lots of OEMs then attempt to do is to try to define a new market. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is, these are like exactly the things you should not do with a deep tech startup. Right? You, should, you should not try to solve all the problems of the industry in a single uh, a company because you'll get dispersed You'll be failing on a lot of problems because you are ne never an expert in all the problems. You'll be missing your proof points and you will be burning like 10 million and then you will not, you will not raise any new money anymore because you missed all your proof points. But OEMs that solve a very focused problem. Right? So for instance, I, I know an OEM who have focused their problems at creating a wing containing batteries which has a perfect structural strength and the perfect integration. And they say, first we create this wing and only if we manage to have the best battery integration in this wing ever, only then we start looking at really the, uh, the, the total plane. I think this is a much better approach than what, what, what many people uh, do is like making partnerships with airlines or making visions on where they can operate and simultaneously uh, uh, working on technology. Yeah, classically, you have different, you have different entities uh, uh, doing that. And it requires, you know, I, I really believe that this, this problem is a leadership problem. It requires executives of a, a electric plane OEM to build teams that are not just building a dream, that, but are, are solving real problems. And the problem with the current deep tech scene is that in order to attract talents and in order to get attention and money and to interest investors, you need to build huge visions. And yeah. this is really against uh, what needs to be done in order to succeed. I guess maybe it, there's a bit of a celebrity effect here with Elon yeah. Musk and... Uh, yeah, you know, everything that he represents for 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 these innovative industries. <laughs> but you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, but Elon Musk did it, so we'll do the same thing." But can you imagine? There's eight billion people in the world. Yeah, and you're trying to do something new, and you say, "Okay, I compare myself. I give myself the chance of one in eight billion that I'm just as lucky and brilliant and serendipic 
as yeah. the single guy who has in history uh, been, yeah. been ruled one. This is not realistic. Eh? It's stacking <laughs> of chance calculations. It's yes. checking. Uh, it's stacking of, of, of assumptions. Mm-hmm. So you have to be extremely focused and extremely in control of every assumption you make. So I believe that in order to make a successful deep tech, because this, this law does not only apply to, to, to electric aviation companies, it's really a leadership challenge. It doesn't matter how much you know about the technology, because by the time your first go-to-market plane is done, the technology has changed. And it's all about understanding in detail the stacked risks and the stacked assumptions and trying to challenge yourself continuously on what assumptions you are making and if the sum of the likeliness of these assumptions is going to be a threat to your company or not. These companies need to raise, depending if they're doing CS23 or CS25, like in the, in the case of Hart, they need to raise somewhere between 200 and 750 million uh, euros uh, in order to, to achieve this. And it's easy to get your first 5 million so lots of OEMs, they get confirmed by their first 5 million and they start working immediately on the final product. But they are unaware of the fact that in order to actually make it to 2030 or something when they will have their first flight, which they probably don't understand because they, they think that they can do it quicker and they think they can do it cheaper. But by the time you're there, you'll be having so many contextual changes that you will have adapted your craft. And if you create a plane and you have to change it too many times during the process, you are going to lose your credibility to investors. And this is legitimate because if you create a complete plane with your first 5 million euros, you're wasting investors' money because you should actually be solving the real problems. Mm-hmm. We have some, some very interesting examples on that. You know, if, if, if Aviation was one of the first uh, companies in the market. I followed them since the beginning. I think this plane was designed in 2018 based around 2018 technology, 2018 batteries. And if you followed them closely, you could see them struggling with constantly changing designs and having to raise fresh funding all yeah. the time. Yeah, This is something that happens everywhere in deep tech companies. Yeah, actually... It's- with aviation, I can say uh, like firsthand because I wrote an article about uh, the new generation of small planes uh, coming to the market for CNN. I wrote it for CNN around 2017 or something like mm-hmm. that. And I remember yeah. I had the chance to speak with the, with the then CEO that he then left the company. And we have just seen the first flight just a few days ago. Um, yes. Um, and it was announced, I think, yeah. early 2020, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the point is, in order to attract funding, you need to create big visions, dreams, uh, fast pace of, 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 of proof points. But in the end, there is a point where you're not going to achieve them if you are not continuously watching the rationality of your choices in the contextual risk framework. And this is a leadership challenge. This has nothing to do with technology or market. It's purely a leadership challenge. And what's going to happen with av- aviation these companies are probably going to die out of legacy issues. You see the same thing with lots of eVTOL companies. Before they have been able to have a craft more than five minutes in the air, they're already at their fifth craft. And they make a nice narrative. They say, oh, but this is for the city and this one is for longer distance. You know, But it's clear that companies are having trouble in getting their proof points. So you're always able to raise 50 million. But then if you stack the missing of proof points, you're never going to raise 
the other 600 million you're going to need because the it's more money, it's going to be more scrutinized. So we are so early in this industry that we are still optimistic and still believing we are doing good, but nobody is anywhere when it comes to certification and nobody is anywhere when it comes to reaching the speed and the range because no speed and range is proven, they are only projections. Mm -hmm. So at this point, when you're doing good, it has no guarantee that you're still doing good for the next year. And this is the biggest problem of basically all deep techs. And this also uh, counts for uh, space startups. It also counts for nuclear fusion, uh, quantum technology, whatever. Uh, hyperloops, you see a lot of uh, companies die and, 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 and the same mechanics. And the OEMs that are going to succeed are the ones that are presenting less plane and that are working more on understanding what is going to kill their company between now and 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, very sobering assessment here <laughs> of the space. Um, so what, what, in your opinion, um, what can we expect in the field of electric aviation in the next decade? Because many of these projects, they, if, if we are to, to believe the projections, which as we have been discussing now, maybe it's not entirely realistic for, in all cases, we should expect to see a, a, a huge wave of concepts and prototypes and, and other, well, not actually prototypes, actually many of those startups have, are promising the already commercial, mm -hmm. commercial vehicles at some point between 2025 to 2027. Yeah. Uh, But uh, yeah, I mean, I I, <laughs> get, I can see you. You're very skeptical with this point. So, what can we expect in in the next 10 years? I mean, what do you see as a realistic scenario for this industry? Where are we uh, heading to, and what are going to be the the vectors for innovation here that will have a, a stronger chance to result in something solid that that mm -hmm. consolidates over time? Yeah, and and a small disclaimer here. You know, I'm I am. A tech entrepreneur. I'm an optimistic person. You know, I I'm often called that I'm overly skeptic on this, but the, you know, this is the burden of 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 knowledge and experience. And I think it's also very good that OEM founders are very optimistic. Uh, but be aware that if you say I'm going to launch my plane in 2025 and it's going to be uh, more sustainable and better than everything else, you're going to have to live up to this claim. And it's statistically, practically impossible to live up to that claim. And, uh, you know, you, you're, the market is going to, to, to kill you for that. And so mm -hmm. you're not going to raise any money anymore if you don't live up to your claim. So, but you have to compete. So what's going to happen uh, in, in, in the next few years, I think, is there's going to be a consolidation of realism. Probably some first movers will die because they will have burned too much money and uh, they will need to do another iteration and it's going to be hard to, to raise that money. But you see lots of talents moving away from the crazy companies into the smarter companies. What, what I love, for instance, I spoke, I spoke to uh, someone who worked at one of the early EV toll companies and he really saw the craziness of what was happening inside there and he took all he took he took all this experience and this knowledge to work for a way more conventional way more realistic ec tall uh, oem and you see there's a collective learning going on uh, yeah. companies look at each other also investors 
uh, will learn not to put blind money into any uh, electric aviation startup with a great story because you know any startup founder will tell you a great story and they will uh, will be able to see more what companies have created tangible technologies that will actually reach that will actually reach into something companies that are struggling and that are constantly communicating presenting the interior presenting the new version presenting the new thing they are they are uh, a bit in a panic move i think we're these are most likely to go away and that the the the, the ones that will have the big achievements within a few years they're the ones that are still relatively below the radar uh, very focused working on non sexy things for instance I'm not a big fan of, of, of hydrogen. You know, hydrogen is a lot harder than uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cells are a lot harder than uh, than, 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 than batteries. Uh, actually, that was my, my next question is how these ele- electric, how does it fit in the whole sustainability uh, landscape that it, it's, it's broader than that? But I, I don't want to interrupt you here. So mm. <laughs> I'll leave you continuing with the what you were about to say about this uh, comparison yeah, with yeah, hydrogen we, cells. We, we, we we could we could we, we should address that maybe yeah. a little bit yeah, yeah, what i wanted yeah. to say about fuel cells is that uh fuel cells have an inherent inefficiency and if you solve that problem you know you will make fuel cells much more uh, attractive for aviation and this is the only problem that needs to be solved to make fuel cell planes possible but if you are a company that is uh, and you say okay we're going to create a plane and we're going to put 95% of our resources into making a plane and 5% in our fuel cell problem you're not very likely to be the one who is going to solve the fuel cell problem but these companies get all the attention because they say look at us we have a fancy plane and we are solving uh, uh, we are going to be the travel uh, thing of the future and everybody is writing about it but the company that is actually making the most efficient fuel cells are barely covered because, come on, it doesn't speak to fantasy. And they are only funded by uh, Nishi VCs, which do really, really good analysis and are less sensitive to hypes. I worked with yeah. a lot of VCs. Don't forget, they are not super smart. They are very sensitive to, 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 to narrative and to hype. So uh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not that when you raise money that it means that you're right. Yeah, many of them are, are also under pressure to to buy into the hype because of yeah. uh, they are they are expected to be invested in what's trendy at the time. And yes, but this is very realistic. When you're yeah. a VC and you're operating, a, say, a fifty million fund, you probably have uh, when you discount uh, management fees, uh, costs, you yeah. probably can spend a single man month. On the, on the analysis of spending uh, two and a half million into electric aviation startup. Yeah, that's the thing. So, I mean, if you're looking at hundreds of projects, uh, how yeah. how much time and resources you can devote to looking at all, all the, yeah, the nooks no and crannies idea. of every project, particularly they when it's no highly idea. technical. Yeah, And many VCs, they look at, you know, I was once on a, on, a, on a negotiation table making a deal and we were talking about the eVTOL company and they were saying, Tom, what do you think about this eVTOL company? And then I told them the story of that when you really calculate it at scale, you know, it's it's going to be uh, like a stacking of chances and it's almost impossible. And then and the guy looked at me and he said, okay, I totally believe your calculation, but the investors that have invested in this company are really smart. So mm-hmm. probably you're missing something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, that happens and, in every field, I think. In, yeah, in, this in, is the way yeah. <laughs> how um, 
you know, with 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 peer uh, validation, how 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 deep tech investing works mm-hmm. nowadays. Yeah. But yeah, this, and this is because there's an abundance of VC money. Yeah? It's not rocket science to raise five million. The rocket science is to raise the next two hundred million. Yeah, and if you bluff, if you are uh, trying to get a total dream picture in the first five million, it's going to be extremely tough to keep a straight face and to meet your proof points when you raise uh, uh, the next round. And in the electric aviation OEMs, we are still in this very early phase. So the big problems are still there to come with the big certification uh, challenges are already visible at hard aviation and the struggle to even get a plane into the air. If you like stack too many innovations on top of each other, uh, visible with aviation. Mm-hmm. And how do you see the well? What I was saying, the elect- electric part of the industry. Let's say if if we understand the let's say the disruption slash sustainability aviation space, there's a number of parallel paths that are being pursued. We have sustainable aviation fuel, of course, but then also hydrogen and different in different different flavors of of hydrogen mm-hmm. uh, and then electric, and then you have the the hybrids in between. How do you see this evolving? I mean, do you do you mm-hmm. see a purely electric at some point dominating um, the space in some way or remaining a niche because of all the known issues with the battery performance or you see this mm, continuing to develop in parallel uh, mm-hmm. that that's something I don't know I guess many people are, are making themselves these questions now thinking about the, yeah. the industry in the next 20 to 30 years yeah 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 that's a good point um, so let me say it first I believe that sustainable aviation is the final frontier of sustainability. It's Mm -hmm. extremely important that work is being done on this and it's extremely hard to crack the formula. So I published uh, some some quick posts on LinkedIn a few months ago uh, where I compare um, sustainable aviation fuels, uh, hydrogen and battery electric. You know, the big advantage of battery electric is that it's extremely efficient. Electric motors are extremely efficient Batteries are extremely efficient in storing energy. And if you put clean energy in it from, from uh, solar panels or from wind turbines, you have a what they call well-to-wheel or maybe well-to-prop shaft uh, efficiency that is above 80%. Fuel-burning aircrafts have a very low efficiency, which is something we have become accustomed to. Huh? You know, a gas turbine has an efficiency in the order of magnitude of less than 40%. But because we can simply take the oil or the gas out of the ground, we are not questioning the efficiency because it's abundant and it's very cheap to pump it up. If you would create this oil uh, or this fuel from uh, clean electricity, in order to make a valid calculation, you would need to make a well to shaft analysis. So when you burn something in the gas turbine, you will end up at a very low efficiency, especially considering that it takes like like the efficiency of creating hydrogen from clean energy is about 30%. And the efficiency of creating sustainable aviation fuels from clean energy is about 25%. The efficiency of these energy storage methods is very low. Mm-hmm. And I, I published, on, you can look on my LinkedIn, maybe in recent articles, I published a little table where you can, uh, where you can yeah. see... And I, then I can when, put it in the in the show notes, definitely. If uh, yeah, yeah, you for, pass but, me but the link, yeah, it's very basic. 
And what mm -hmm. I would like to invite everybody in this world to do is to do these basic calculations. Because people say hydrogen is clean and sustainable aviation fuels are clean. And they are right. They are clean when they are created from clean sources. But because the creation of these or the distribution of the energy using these methods is extremely inefficient, you'd need an abundance of clean sources. And on top of that, we have to stack that to fly a plane, the sheer amount of energy required to fly planes at the scale and the distance we are doing today is so big that if you multiply these these factors of inefficiency plus the sheer amount of energy you need, that just for aviation, just for aviation, you will need about four or five times the clean energy we have today. And then we don't even talk about 2050 or anything, you know, it's, it's almost impossible. And I think this should be put more often in perspective and people should make more calculations. Uh, a year ago, Air France, they said, oh, we managed to fly a plane on discarded, uh, like cooking fat, cooking yeah. grease. And this was interesting because they flew, I think, a 737 and one leg and 10% of cooking fat. And they said, look at us, we are being very sustainable. But then if you calculate and take all the discarded cooking fat in France and you would extrapolate it on the number of planes they operate every day, you know, they would not even be able to uh, serve half a percent of the planes. So it's not a solution. But... Things like biofuels, clean fuels, hydrogen are presented as a black box green solution. And we need to be much more sober in that. We need to be much more realistic in that. We need to invite people to do their calculations. Yeah. Well, they obviously, I mean, these fuels have their advantages. The proponents would tell you, yeah, but they are available now, sort of, uh, in a reduced scale. But you start doing things now. We cannot wait like 20 years that uh, battery technology has made possible some breakthrough mm. or something like that. So do you think it's a, a breakthrough is possible? I mean, in, in a, let's say, in a realistic time scale, like a one decade or two. I think it's actually the other way around. Mm -hmm. Because people speculate on abundance of clean energy. Mm -hmm. But we see in recent events, you know, with the gas crisis, that uh, actually the opposite is happening. Uh, we're lacking gas, so uh, we're going to switch more to electricity. So the, 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 the pressure on demand of clean energy, uh, electrical energy is going to be bigger. And there's some very striking examples for that. For instance, I, I remember in the north of the Netherlands, there was a, an example community where they made the heating of houses with green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But now, so they thought, okay, we win. We are less depending on gas. Uh, this was a topic there. But now with the electricity prices going up drastically, heating by green hydrogen is extremely expensive uh -huh. because it is, you use three times as much energy as if you would simply be heating with electricity because you need to convert yeah. it into hydrogen first. Yes. And... Come on, it, it, it's learning, it's teaching people a lesson that if you do not make your full energy cycle calculations in advance, mm -hmm. you're going to be ready for surprises. Yeah. And I see, for instance, when it comes to electric plane uh, initiatives, you'll see people that speak about, okay, we're going to fly. Uh, it's going to be uh, less expensive than conventional flying. And then you look at their calculation and you see extremely low kilowatt hour prices, you see extremely high numbers of battery cycles, you see no pressure on the battery markets, you see very low. So, so the point is, 
we need to learn to make our own calculations and our own estimations of risk instead of listening to what optimistic people are saying. So yeah, we need to do our own calculations. Yeah, that's clear. So if you were to to bet on the expansion of electric flight uh, becoming mainstream, what would be your expected, let's say, development timeline? I mean, mm. if if we you were asked to put some date mm-hmm. to the point where it's possible, I don't know up to which point, as I was mentioning earlier, up to which point technology, battery technology would allow for, for an expansion of, of capabilities. What this timeline would look like in terms of dates, let's say like 2030, we might see this segment electrified 2040 we might see these other segments yeah um well you know i'm i'm very much against predicting too far into the future i'm much more for as a company being ready for an uncertain future at a point where we do not know where it's going anymore but i would say maybe in uh, in 2030 we would see the first commercial electric operations at least that have a, a range and the speed and the scale that is like really a, a contribution in the the the, the landscape. Huh? Of course, there will be there will be some larger certified electric planes first, but you know if they don't go far and if they don't go fast enough, uh, it doesn't count because it doesn't have the um, because it doesn't have the utility value for transportation. Beyond that, like fifty seaters type of development, it's extremely hard to predict. And I think we like what what's what we see happening with hard aviation right now. We're going to see a couple of these increased compromises, mm-hmm. uh, incremental compromises. We're going to see that more and more and more. And also, some approaches in the industry will become so extremely compromised that they will become obsolete. So my only prediction is that we will see compromises. Initial operations will be very niche, um, and this is good. But that also. Uh, it is extremely important to think about how can we fly less? Uh, how how can we really uh, solve the long distance problem? Maybe is there could be something done in efficiency of hydrogen and uh, sustainable aviation fuels. You never know. Huh? You know, maybe uh, uh, nuclear nuclear fusion will become realistic, and there is suddenly the abundance of energy we all need. It's just that my advice is not to count on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So. So it, it it really depends. You know, I, I see a lot of great initiatives like uh, in, in the Netherlands and France, there are electric flight schools. Yeah. This is fantastic. You know, you can yeah. use airplanes of today. You can use the Pipistrel Vélez yeah. to do electric aviation lessons. This is great because, you know, in the past they were done with, uh, with, with, with Cessna 172s who flew on leaded gasoline. So yeah. <laughs> this is already great. You know, it's things we can do today and we have to celebrate that. Yeah, I think um, I think there was a McKinsey report that quantified the the percentage of the aviation industry as a whole that could be electri- electrified relatively easily. I think it was something like seventeen percent, something like that. This including uh, training, general aviation, yeah, small commuter planes, all sort of like different different utility planes that are out there yeah, flying. Yeah, if you, yeah, you have to start at the bottom, and you have yeah. to celebrate that. It, it's it's mm-hmm. just that you know a a Pipistrelles has little other use than a flight training because it's extremely slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only make uh, short duration flights, and you can only have two people on board. It's mm-hmm. perfect for flight training because when you fly slow, 
there are no rules in getting a, a pilot's license that you have to go fast. So it's easier to learn. Mm -hmm. You only make uh, uh, block times of 45 minutes anyway, because you're exhausted uh, mm -hmm. when you're learning to fly. So the paper cell is perfect for this, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, we, we don't have, we shouldn't underestimate how far away a plane like that is from something that goes 500 kilometers at 200 knots carrying yeah. at least more than nine passengers because otherwise it would not be able to be operated at scale. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, for all this overview and, and all these very insightful thoughts. I think it's uh, something that we usually, when we read all these headlines, we don't give enough thought to how this is realistic, how is this going to fit, how this is going to actually uh, stand the test of time. And that's definitely something that I put myself homework to be um, a bit more, maybe a bit more inquisitive when I read all these type of headlines and, and see... Mm -hmm. Uh, what's hype and, and what's substance. Um, for people that want to learn more about you and about your projects, uh, about Electric Leap, uh, where should they go? What channels should they check? Yeah, I, I don't do a lot of, um, my work is not very public, but when it comes to the, the energy density uh, issues, it's interesting to read uh, the, like the recent articles, uh, the, uh, the recent posts I made on LinkedIn. They're very mm -hmm. accessible. It's like uh, uh, a short post of 20 lines uh, to, to show a calculation of how, how hard this problem really is. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. You know, I, I, but, but, you know, my work is mostly behind doors because there's NDAs and, and investors and OEMs. I can <laughs> so, imagine. And, and then there's a website, electricleap.eu, right? Yes. That's your corporate, yeah, corporate yeah. web portal. To yes. put it in some way, very good. So I'm gonna add those to the to the show notes, and yeah. In the meantime, well, just left for me to thank you very much for yeah, and dedicating... I'll be seeing you around. Yeah, hopefully we'll cross paths as, uh, some other on some other occasion. After all, this is a relatively small world of sustainable aviation. It is, yes. and wishing you uh, a great week because just starting today is a Monday morning where we are we're based both in in europe so yeah thank you so much great okay see you around miguel see you before you go and if you like this podcast a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on apple spotify or whichever platform you are using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested thank you very much and see you soon